let's pray for God's help now. Father, thank you that you are with us by your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired these words that we read now. Thank you that here we can hear your voice and we can meet with your Son, Jesus. We pray that you would help us to hear what you're saying and uh, help us to put our trust in Jesus and live for him. Amen. So where are we going to find a leader that we can really trust? It's hard to deny that our society has very mixed feelings about leadership. We value and desire great leadership, but we're also very cynical about leaders and about their leadership. A few uh, years ago, uh, Winston Churchill was voted the greatest Briton who ever lived. I think, uh, Corinne, I'm trying to control this, but it doesn't seem to come up. Do you want to... Well, we're just missing a Oh, there we go. Nice picture of Winston Churchill for you. Um, he, he's most the, the greatest Briton who ever lived. Um, but uh, do you know what? Uh, now police are guarding his statue in Parliament Square for fear that protesters will attempt to remove him or at least to decapitate him uh, because of some of the things that he wrote, for example, regarding the ability of the nation of India to govern itself in the cold light of day in 2020. It all sounds pretty racist. Where are we going to find a leader that we can really trust? Leadership is a key issue in the books of Samuel. Having had a, a period of unstable leadership in the time of the judges, we're heading towards a very uh, significant moment in the life of Israel, the time when they ask for and are given a king, a leader. And in these early chapters, chapters 1 to 7, um, we're in the, the preamble to that when that happens in chapter 8. What we see is the early life of Samuel, who's going to become a key player later as Israel's king is chosen. And the question is, well, what kind of person is this Samuel? And uh, how is he going to help in this search for the right kind of leader? What can we learn from his background about the kind of leader he will be? In the reading from 1 Samuel that we heard we see that questions about leadership are being raised right from the beginning of Samuel's life. And we get this kind of contrast in, this, uh, in, in, the, in, in these verses between, to begin with, two sets of sons, the sons of Eli and the son of Hannah. And then we turn to the faithful priest who will bring hope for the future. So let's look at each of these sets of people in turn and ask what they teach us about leadership. So first of all, Eli's wicked sons. What do we learn about Eli's sons? Well, we first heard about them in, in chapter 1, verse 3. Um, and uh, their names were Hophni and Phinehas. They were priests. Um, and then nothing more until, these, uh, until chapter 2, verse 12 first verse of the reading we heard and now the narrator is pretty blunt they are wicked men literally it says they're sons of belial which means evil wickedness rebellion the last time in the bible's narrative that this term was used was at the end of judges um, you may know the book of judges concludes with a truly shocking story 
of a, a Levite whose concubine is raped and murdered and then cut up into 12 pieces and sent to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the gang who rape and murder this concubine are said to be sons of Belial. And so verse 12, just saying they're wicked, is probably slightly too mild, in fact, as a description of what these guys are like. And they serve the priests at the tabernacles. So they've, got, they've got a public office. And they were guilty of exploiting that position that they had uh, in two ways that actually still beset those in leadership today. They exploit their position first for personal gain, material gain, and secondly, for sexual gratification. So verses 13 to 17 in chapter 2 tell us about their corruption for personal gain. In the law that governs sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, God had made provision for the priests to live off a small amount of the proceeds of what the people brought for sacrifice. So if someone brought a lamb for sacrifice, uh, most of it would be burnt up, but a, a small amount would be available for the priest to eat because the priest in the tabernacle had no other way of supporting himself. But these young priests had taken that custom and they'd exploited it to the nth degree. They played a kind of lucky dip with a three-pronged fork. Stick it in the cauldron and whatever comes up is yours. Now, not only was this a, a perversion of the law's intent, they were also too lazy to do the dirty work themselves, preferring to command their servants to do it for, him, for them. And then, when they'd been doing that for a bit, they began to think, well, hang on, why wait for the meat to be cooked? You know, boiled meat, it's rather plain, don't really like boiled. Let's just get it raw from those who come to sacrifice it. Then we can roast it ourselves and we can make it really nice and tasty. And verse 16, this extended to using force if any of the worshippers who came were raising um, questions about this. If they had sort of slightly tender consciences. Are you, are you sure, priests, that you should really be doing this? They would reply with violence. So they were exploiting for personal gain. And, and verse 22 adds another indiscretion, almost in passing. They slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So can you see they're basically an ancient version of two very modern scandals. Parliamentary expenses, and kind of abusing the system, whether it's a duck house or worse or whatever it might be, and uh, celebrity sexual abuse, abuse of power for your own gratification. And, and not surprisingly, tabloid rumours of their exploits began to spread in Israel and they reached the ears of their own father, Eli. And we get a hint of some of what might lie behind their extraordinary rebellion in verse 22 to 25, if you look at that. Here is Eli. He's clearly distressed by his son's behaviour, but he's unable to do any more than just rebuke them. He asks them why they do what they do. He warns them that this behaviour is a rejection of God and indeed of God's means of saving his people, verse 25, by exploiting the sacrificial system. They are doing the Old Testament equivalent of rejecting Jesus' death on the cross. And if you do that, he says, what hope remains? And those words are right and true as he rebukes them, but actually he stops short of 
calling his sons to repent and to change. He just sort of tells them, this isn't a very good idea, guys. And probably not for the first time, these sons ignore their father. And in a modern context, you know, we might seek to explain their wickedness from their upbringing or from some external set of circumstances. But actually, verse 12, right back at the beginning, points us to the root of the problem, which is that they had no regard for the Lord. They did not know the Lord. And this is massively significant because it reminds us that the Bible's diagnosis of the root problem with human beings is very different from our world's diagnosis. And also, uh, often from our own diagnosis of that root problem. You know, when, when we are faced with leadership that falls short, well, what do we tend to say? So, oh, you see, the problem is not enough regulation, or it's, well, it's letting people who are educated at Eton and Oxford run the country. That's really the problem. Or it's, it's you know, having a professional class of politicians. Or it's uh, having bishops in the House of Lords. Or it's, it's just paying these guys too much money. Or, or even that it just sort of somehow comes with the role that you simply cannot be a leader or a celebrity without it corrupting you in some way. And so we start to think, well, maybe the solution is to find people who aren't like that. You know, an outsider. Wouldn't it be better if normal people like us ran the country? But the Bible continually reminds us that you can't divide the world into the good people and the bad people. As if the solution to bad leadership is simply, oh, just it's because you haven't yet found the good people. If you go find them and ask them to run things, everything will be fine. No, it, it's not like that. And that's because the, the fundamental problem with these bad priests, Hophni and Phinehas, was simply they did not know the Lord. And actually... That is a problem that's shared by every single human being, isn't it? Not just those in power, but those in every walk of life, including you and me. And the question for those who are intent on pulling down statues and pulling, putting right the wrongs of the past is, where are we going to stop? Where are we going to find a leader with no ties to anything evil or to slavery or whatever it might be? Because if we tear down sinners wherever they're found... Will we not eventually have to tear ourselves down? Whatever the latest social ill that is identified, we need to ask ourselves honestly whether naturally we could actually be capable of something similar given the right set of circumstances and maybe the sense that we might get away with it. Well, that is the first rather negative point from these verses and from Eli's wicked sons. They did not know the Lord acted in accordance with that but more positively there is some hope here and it comes in the form of first of all of Hannah's favored son Hannah's favored son secondly so in the middle of the story of Eli's dysfunctional family life comes a completely different family so verse 18 here is Samuel who was promised to the Lord from birth because he was an answer to a barren woman's heartfelt prayer as we've seen in the last couple of weeks whose 
parents, Elkanah and Hannah, remained lovingly attentive to their son as they continued to make their annual pilgrimage. A family who were blessed by the Lord as wonderfully the Lord gives Hannah three more sons and two daughters. And this son grows up in the presence of the Lord. In verse 26, the, the, the paragraph concludes, he grew in stature and he grew in favor with the Lord and with men. Completely different from these wicked sons of Eli. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this contrast? Well, the striking thing is that the narrator makes no effort at all to turn Samuel into some kind of moral lesson. You know, as if he's saying, don't be like the sons of Eli, be like Samuel. No, that, that, that isn't what he does. We're told very clearly that Eli's sons were wicked and we're, we're shown their wicked deeds. But here is Samuel. And the central thing that is said about him is that he knows God and God knows him. And of course, the, this stands in contrast to the sons of Eli, who, who do not have regard for the Lord. But there is more going on here. This is just the beginning of the story. This is the beginning of the life of a man who grows up knowing the Lord and leading others to know him too. And there can be no doubt which of these families would have hit the headlines more often in whatever the tabloid press equivalent was in those days. See, there would have been plenty to report about Eli's sons, <clears throat> but it would have been easy to miss the everyday faithfulness of Hannah's family and her son Samuel. It would be easy to think that Israel was going down the tubes, wouldn't it? You know, as you looked around you and just see all this corruption and all these people holding office and abusing their power and scandals all over the place, and you think, what is the country coming to? They would think. The future looks bleak when you read the news headlines, they would have said, uh, with priests in the tabernacle like this. But God was at work behind the scenes, behind what is seen, if you like, in the life of a faithful family. And it's the same about a thousand years later in the early life of Jesus. We heard that in the reading from Luke. Actually, Luke even quotes 1 Samuel, effectively, at the end of that reading. Um, did you hear that? Did you spot that? Uh, that he grew in stature and in favour with the Lord and with men. As the young boy, Jesus, grows up. And we hear about him going to the temple like Samuel was. It would have been easy just then as well with Jesus in those early days to dismiss him. And even his parents were confused by him. What are you doing? Why, where have you gone? Why are you, why are you talking to the guys in the temple? We thought you were with us. And no one would have stopped to think, here is the future for God's people. Here is the solution to the problems, not just of Israel, but of the world. And yet, behind what was seen, God was bringing about the salvation of his people and the world. And it's exactly the same today, isn't it, when you stop to think about it. You know, we, we, we look around us and we just see crises and problems in our culture, in, 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 in the world of politics, in the world of celebrity culture, even in the church itself. When we see abuse and terrible things that have gone on, even amongst those who call themselves Christians and respected Christian leaders, even, people that we might ourselves even have looked up to and respected. You think, oh my goodness, what is it, what is the world coming to? What is the church coming to? But could it be 
But if we only look at those things, we're looking in the wrong place. Looking at the public profile and the things that get reported, where what actually matters is the unseen, the unreported faithfulness of everyday Christians and churches reaching out to those around them in love. The stuff that doesn't make the headlines. The stuff that doesn't get on the blogs or that even you know, photographed and put on Instagram. God is at work where we can't see him. There is hope in Hannah's favoured son. And then finally, even more so, in God's faithful priest. In the second half of the reading from verse 27 onwards, God first pronounces his judgment on Eli's wicked sons. Of those to whom much has been given, verses 27 and 28, much is demanded. Verse 29, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering? Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourself on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? This is God speaking through his uh, spokesman to Eli about his sons. Therefore, verse 30, those who despise me will be disdained. Their lives will be cut short and the lives of their direct descendants. Good will be done to Israel, he says, but not through these particular priests. So the priestly line is going to carry on without them. But verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then those who fatten themselves now will come groveling to him. That's the fulfillment of Hannah's prayer that we saw last time, back in chapter 2, verse 5. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. That is going to happen, God says. At face value, the faithful priest that the man of God has in mind here is Samuel. That's who it sounds like it's talking about, the one that's going to be raised up, a faithful priest, ministering faithfully at the temple, while those around him live for themselves. But we, in, in the language that he uses, we're still left wondering, who is this anointed one? Verse 35. Do you notice that? Who's the, who is this? Who is the anointed one? At this point in the story, in the narrative, that doesn't quite make sense. We've, we've heard him... Uh, earlier as well in chapter 2 verse 10 the anointed he keeps speaking of the one who is anointed who is this who's it going to be that's what the reader is left wondering and we're going to start to see how that plays out in the book of uh, 1 Samuel as we come to um, the anointing of a king but then beyond that we find that this in the end sees fulfillment in the one who is both the faithful priest and the Lord's anointed, in Jesus, who is priest and king, who lived the perfect, faithful, sinless life, and then on behalf of sinners died a faithful death. And we're going to remember that together in a few minutes uh, as we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So in this chapter... We see two completely different visions for leadership. One is for those who, of those who live for themselves, who see leadership as a vehicle for personal gain and whose actions are the ones that grab the headlines. 
And it's what we fear of every leader in our world, both in the church and out of the church. Don't be afraid, this chapter says. Those who lead like that will meet with justice. Never presume that leaders are immune from failure. Never put leaders on a pedestal such that we start to think that whatever they say cannot be challenged. It's a very dangerous place to be for any leader. But as much as that is true, never doubt that God's promises and plans will continue regardless, even in the face of faithless leadership. The hope for the future of our world, of the church, of those we love, is not in any human being. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. So says Psalm 146. Don't put your hope in human leaders, your ultimate hope. Don't put your hope in me. Don't put your hope in the the staff team. Don't put your hope in the the trustees and the ministry oversight team or our small group leaders. Put your hope in the one who knows the Lord, the one favoured by God. And that ultimately, of course, was not even Samuel, who was still flawed in some respects. That is only Jesus. Of course, it's it's right to, to vote, to engage, to be involved with, to seek to influence the public square and the world around us. That's not where our hope lies. Rather, our hope lies in this Jesus and the gospel that he calls us to proclaim. Father, we know that hope for the future doesn't lie in us, doesn't lie in human strength, doesn't lie in individual human beings. It lies in your faithful priest and king, Jesus, who has died and risen from the dead. Pray for anyone who's yet to put their trust in him as their saviour and lord. Would you enable them to see how Jesus must be the only way back to you? That he is unique amongst all who've ever lived. Fully God, fully man, living a sinless life, dying a perfect death. So that when we trust in him we can be forgiven and have real hope for the future. May we believe that for ourselves. May we share it with the world around us.